tonight talking about what are my expectations for myself. So in thinking about that, I actually came across this article and I thought, you know what? This kind of goes along really nicely with what we are going to talk about. And so I'm going to um, begin by looking at this article and, and these nine things actually. And you will see that they are on your outline. We're going to go over them again later. Here I'm going to read them a little bit more with a little more detail than later because we're going to address them later with the scripture. And I left the scripture on there because I wanted you to see that as well. So anyways, the title of this article is Nine Types of Entitlement Tendencies and How to Overcome Them. So this is from a psychologist secular viewpoint. <clears throat> as I read through this list, uh, or as I read through it, try to evaluate your expectations of yourself and really consider, like, can you relate to any of this? Does any of it sound maybe familiar in your own life? So number one, you expect the same rules that apply to others shouldn't apply to you. For example, other people might need to start at the bottom and work their way up, but you shouldn't have to. Essentially, you expect life to be easier for you than it is for others. Number two, you feel massively put upon when other people ask for small favors, but you expect that when you ask people for favors, it's no big deal, no big effort. Number three, you expect other people to be more interested in you and what's on your agenda than you're interested in them and what's on their agenda. You see your own interests as more interesting than other people's, and you see your goals and dreams as more valid or important than other people's. Number four, you disregard rules that are intended for everyone's comfort. For example, you ignore signs asking you to please not put your feet on the chairs at the movie theater. Number five, you freeload. That's just kind of scary, isn't it? For example, you use unethical or illegal programs to download movies rather than paying for them. Number six, you inconvenience others without thinking. For example, you cancel appointments or reservations repeatedly. You make plans with friends and then bail on those plans without considering that your friend may have organized other plans around fitting you in. You run into a store one minute before closing without thinking about the fact that you'll be delaying the shop assistant from getting home on time. You think, it's only five minutes, without considering that the assistant may have somewhere they need to go. Number seven, you think it's okay to upset or offend other people. Number eight, you cheat in environments that are based on reciprocity. For example, you ask loads of questions in your favorite internet forum, but you don't spend the same amount of time answering other people's questions. Number nine, when working in groups, you think you should be the leader or get the most credit. So obviously, if you're anything like me, being honest, it's always scary, my initial response to reading this list was to recognize the selfishness of these expectations and quickly dismiss them, denying that I possess any of them. Well, of course, I'm not gonna be rude. I'm not gonna like treat somebody unkindly. But after closer examination, I realized some of my underlying motives may reflect more of these selfish tendencies than I would prefer to admit. 
So there were several verses, as I read through that list, there were several verses that kind of popped up as I was thinking about it for a little bit. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of biblical perspective regarding this list. And keep in mind, we're talking about expectations here. And that's why I liked that list, because it was what you expect from people, what you expect from life. So here are just some of these verses really quickly. So Romans 12, 3 says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. So as you're thinking through that list of expectations, this is the counter with the scripture. So then Romans 15, 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. And 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And then the last one here, Philippians 2, 3, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So clearly we have a serious disconnect going on here. We have all these things that we expect to receive ourselves, but then we have scriptures saying, what are we actually supposed to be? thinking about other people, considering the needs of other people over ourselves. And I realize this is like total review, so I don't expect that this is new information. But again, we kind of have to start at the beginning in order for when we get down looking at our own expectations that we understand kind of where we're going here. Most of us are probably familiar with these verses. We affirm them, promote them, and are even trying to live them out in our lives. When we read a list like that one we just read, we immediately recognize those things as being what? Selfish, totally selfish. <clears throat> and actually we can tend to be really appalled at the thought of living in that kind of a manner. Because of the truths we know from scripture, we know that living selfishly is sinful and we don't want to live that way. So then of course the age old question, then why do we? Why do we read that list of ten entitlement tendencies, or ten, nine entitlement tendencies, acknowledging each trait as sinful, and yet we still see some of those tendencies in our own hearts and in our own lives? So it's because of the sinful pride that still remains in our hearts and seeks to promote itself above everyone and everything. So that's what pride is ultimately, like the sin of Satan. I will exalt myself. I will sit on the throne of the Most High. Like that was totally what Satan was doing. He wanted to be the most important. That is what pride is. And so naturally, our expectations, if they're guided by pride that's in our hearts, it's going to lead to all kinds of, of sinful responses. So we're going to jump right on to your outline tonight. So num Roman numeral one is discovering the root of our expectations. So Capital A is pride exalts self and denies truth. And I know when we first started the study, we talked about the fact that pride is behind our expectations, but we're going to look at it a little bit more deeply tonight. So listen to the following verses on the topic of pride. So we have our little list here. Number one, pride results in nothing but strife. That should be but strife, not by strife. So Proverbs 13.10 says, through insolence, pride, or insolence, insolence is pride. Okay, so in case you don't understand what that word means. I've got pride in parentheses. I was like, wait, what does that mean? 
Anyway, okay, so through insolence or pride comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. Number two, pride causes us to challenge each other and envy each other. So Galatians 5.26 says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Number three, pride rejects truth and promotes self. Third John, and there's only one chapter in John, so it's Third John 1, 9. It says this, But Diatrophes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. And number four, pride deceives us into thinking we are godly when we actually are not. So James 3, 13 through 15, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, the passage says. Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. So basically, we have this list of of characteristics of pride. So if, and continuing here with this thought in James, if you are bitter and jealous, it says don't be proud and lie against the truth, thinking that you have godly wisdom, because godly wisdom is never going to demonstrate itself in bitter jealousy and or bitterness and jealousy. And I think sometimes this is where we can sometimes be deceived because we get into the respectable sins and we become a little bitter, just just a little bitter with somebody (laughs) for the way they've treated us, for past issues, whatever it is. And we can deceive ourselves because it's just that one little area. And so we kind of just dismiss it out of our minds, but we're doing all these other good things over here. And so we think of ourselves as being spiritual or being godly or having godly wisdom. But ultimately, James is telling us that's not true. We can't have jealousy and bitterness and think that we have wisdom from the Lord because it's not, it's not true. And actually what we're doing is if we deceive ourselves in that way, we are lying against the truth. Clearly, if pride resides in our hearts, it is going to affect our expectations naturally. It causes us to desire to be like diatrophies. I don't know about you guys, but his name sticks in my head because it's like the appalling person. He's the one that wants to be first, like that person that wants to be right, that wants to be recognized. So sin causes or pride causes us to be like diatrophies, and it results in disunity and dissension with other people. It results in strife, and it causes us to challenge other people as we fight to be the most important. That's always what pride does is it seeks, and and it looks differently in different people. I think that we have to make that clarification because some people, pride is going to be demonstrated in loud, taking over, dominating conversations. For other people, pride is that quiet, sit back and judge other people. So it looks different depending on who we are, and we have to make sure that we are evaluating that pride in our hearts rightly. 
It also causes us to envy others because if we want to be most important, we need to take what other people have so we have the greater prominence. So that's where envy comes in. When, because the, the difference, at least when I've studied it before, the difference generally between jealousy and envy is that jealousy wants to have what you have also. Whereas envy takes it a little bit further to want to take what you have so you cannot have it and I have it. And so that goes very nicely along with pride, right? Because pride wants to dominate. Pride wants to be the most important. And if you have the thing that makes you more important than me, then I'm going to want that so I can be more important. You can see the real wickedness going on here. And obviously, if our expectations are flowing out of that kind of a desire, then there's going to be serious problems. So capital B, pride is deceitful. The reason pride is so difficult to root out is because it is sin, and sin is deceitful. It often function, functions under the radar of our good intentions, and thus we don't recognize it. Because sin is deceitful, so it, we sometimes imagine that our motives are actually way more righteous than what they actually truly are. So just a few verses because I always think it's interesting to really see what Scripture says about these things. So Hebrews 3.13 says, But encourage one another day after day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 7.11 says, For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So that's Paul talking about his previous life, <clears throat> or before he was saved, <laughs> previous life. Okay, Ephesians 4.22, <laughs> lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts, or lust means desires, the desires of what? Deceit. So combined with the deceitfulness, so we have the deceitfulness of sin, and then combined with the deceitfulness of sin is the deceitfulness of our hearts. And I know I have mentioned this before, but I just think it's good to remind ourselves Scripture tells us that apart from Christ and the truth of Scripture, our hearts deceive us and lead us into sin. So, capital C on your outline. Our hearts deceive us. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. This is the one that we're usually almost familiar with. The heart is more deceitful than all else. That's a pretty strong statement. The heart that is not guided by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is more deceitful than all else, Jeremiah tells us. Isaiah 44, 20 says this, A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So basically, the phrase I want you to see here is that first phrase, A deceived heart turned him aside. A deceived heart turns us aside from walking in righteousness. And then there's a verse from Obadiah that I find very interesting. And Obadiah is like one of those little teeny tiny books, one of the minor prophets that we don't often go to and is very short actually. But he was writing to the wicked Edomites who had oppressed the, the Israelites 
over time, he, the Edomites were ancestors of Esau, so that, that will kind of help you have a little bit of placement here. But Obadiah wrote to the Edomites, basically saying, there is judgment coming on you because of your sin. And they didn't want to listen to what he had to say because, okay, so you guys, are you all familiar with Petra, the, the little city in the rocks? Well, that is where the Edomites lived. And because they lived there, they felt like it was impenetrable. They didn't feel like anybody would actually be able to conquer them because of where they lived. They lived securely in this rock or in this mountainside or whatever you want to call it, cliffs. So here's what Obadiah says to them. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you because judgment was coming and they were going to be wiped out. And they wouldn't believe the truth of Obadiah, what he had to say, the truth from the Lord, because they felt like they were safe in and of themselves. And it was what that caused them to be like that? The arrogance, the pride in their own heart that deceived them. This verse kind of takes it all and brings it all together so we can see exactly what's going on here. This is what we have to avoid. And as children of God, obviously, we're not rebellious like the Edomites were, but we have to root out the tendencies of pride that are there so that we don't have any arrogance in our hearts that's going to deceive us and keep us trapped in our sin and keep us living that way, which according to this study, as we're talking about, then affects our expectations. Because remember, if our expectations are wrong, we're going to live out sinfully. And that's what we're trying to avoid is living sinfully. So due to the deceitful nature of sin and the natural sinful tendency of our hearts, we often are ignorant of our sin. Ultimately, this means that we may have sinful desires driving our expectations and not even realize that that's what's happening. And like we said in previous lessons, a lot of times the thing that helps us recognize what our expectations are and to identify that they're sinful is because we respond sinfully when we don't get what we expected or when we get what we didn't expect. So that kind of becomes our little red flag there. When our expectations are driven by pride in our hearts, they will be sinful. And when we don't get what we want, the thing that will momentarily satisfy our pride, because that's what we're after, right? We're after the thing that's going to satisfy us in this moment. That's what pride desires. We will respond sinfully and act in ways described in that article that we started with in the beginning, the nine entitlement tendencies. So what I want to do real quickly is I want to look through the, that list of nine things and then bring verses to bear on each one. And this is really quick, so we can't really get into each one. And the point is not to teach from the newspaper. That's not my goal. <laughs> but I thought it might be helpful. Sometimes when we look at these things and we see articles like this, we can nod our head, oh yeah, whatever. But Scripture needs to always be the thing that drives our proper understanding. And so we can look at it and go, yes, no, yes, no, and, you know, whatever. But is it compared to the Word of God so that we have built our convictions on the Word of God and that is what is guiding our critique of whatever it is that we're reading? 
So anyway, starting with number one, you expect the same rules that apply to others shouldn't apply to you. So maybe one verse that we could bring to bear on that is Romans 12, 3. You think more highly than you ought to think. We just think of ourselves as being more important than somebody else. We have a higher view of ourselves than we ought to. And so naturally we think, well, that's a rule for you, but I don't have to live according to that. I can live separately, which of course ultimately is pride. You feel inconvenienced when other people ask you for small favors, but expect them to help you when you need something. So Philippians 2.4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So here's the thing when we think about this. We are inconvenienced when people ask us for help, but then we expect them to help us. Now, we can leave off that whole first part of that. When we expect other people to help us when we need something... Is that always a right and good expectation? Now, I think like it's not wrong to want somebody to help us in that situation, but we have to be careful how strongly we desire that thing because a lot of times these things are in the measure of our desire, right? Because it, can't, it, it isn't necessarily wrong to say, hey, can you help me? and expect that they would say yes. But we identify the degree that our expectation is when they say no, and we find ourselves frustrated or angry. And then all of a sudden we realize that expectation was designed in my own heart to accomplish my own will, rooted in pride, and I have not considered Philippians 2.4, which says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Maybe the person that we've asked to help with whatever it is can't do it for a good reason. Maybe they can't do it for a bad reason. But regardless, we are responsible for our own pride in our own hearts and how we respond to whether we get what we want or not. Does that make sense? Not much response going on. Are y'all awake? Okay, so number three, you expect other people to be more interested in you and what's going on your, uh, and what's on your agenda than you're interested in them and what's on their agenda. And again, the, the Philippians 2, 3 this time, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So you can see just the contrast of what our expectations should be according to scripture versus what they are when they're rooted in pride. So number four, you disregard rules that are intended for everyone's comfort. Romans 15, two, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So disregarding rules that are intended for other people's comfort and we just bypass it like, oh, it doesn't matter. Well, are we seeking to please our neighbor? No, we're seeking to please ourselves in that moment and that's rooted in pride. And we can take this into like the really private relationships in our lives too, right? With our children, with our husbands, with close 
family members, whatever it is. And we need to be evaluating those little things because a lot of times that's where it's worked out. We tend to think sometimes, well, you know, I, I'm okay with people at church, but yeah, but how do I respond in the little uh, intimate places with my intimate relationships? So number five, you freeload. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Number six, you inconvenience others without thinking. 1 Corinthians 1.24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Number seven, you think it's okay to upset or offend other people. So that's your expectation. You expect that it's okay for you to say an unkind word or treat someone just a little bit not nice, and if they get offended, so what? It's, it's denying to apply or failing to apply Ephesians 4.29 is a great example of that. Giving that the, uh, the things that we speak would give, would give grace to others, that they would be appropriate for the need of the moment. Well, when we just think we can flippantly say whatever we want, we are thinking that it's okay to upset and offend other people. Well, they just need to hear it. Well, maybe we should have considered whether it was according to the need of the moment, whether it would give grace to the person that heard. So Galatians 5.26 says this, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another. Number eight, you cheat in environments that are based on reciprocity. So 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not act unbecomingly. And then number nine, when working in groups, you think you should be the leader or get the most credit. And of course, I had to use 3 John 1.9 with diatrophies, right? But diatrophies, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So this whole idea of elevating ourselves, thinking that we're more important, so often when we do not get our expectations met in the way we desired, it is because they are rooted in the desire to elevate self. So then D is scripture enables us to properly evaluate our hearts. So last week or last two weeks, your homework was to pray through Psalm 119. So as I'm studying, like all of that is coming to my mind. So we're going to have several verses here using Psalm 119. So did you notice how many times the psalmist asked for discernment and understanding? That goes obviously right along with what we were praying over, this, over the last couple of weeks. Over and over again, he's asking for understanding. He wants discernment so that he can understand the word of God. So number one, scripture provides understanding. So just, I'm giving you guys a whole bunch of verses tonight. I realize that. So hopefully this isn't just a major scripture dump. But this is how we evaluate our hearts. We do it against the word of God. So Psalm 119.66 says, Teach me good discernment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. And then Psalm 119.34. So that one is talking about discernment, the one we just read. So the, the 
following ones, I think, are all about understanding. So Psalm 119.34 says, Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. So are we keeping God's word with all of our heart when we are responding out of pride? No. So we need understanding to the word of God so that we will respond without pride. Uh, Verse 73, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 125, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. 144, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I might live. And 169, give me understanding according to your word. Is this the prayer of your heart? Well, if you were praying through Psalm 119 over the last couple of weeks, it is, right? (laughs) Which is fabulous. And this is what we should always be praying. Lord, give me understanding. Now, here's the thing. If we aren't diligent to be in the word, can he answer that prayer? No. And this is going to require effort and discipline, scheduling time, carving it out of crazy busy schedules so that we will be in the word so that we can ask God to give us understanding because he can't give us understanding to something that we never pay any attention to. So in addition to these verses on understanding, the psalmist asks God 10 times in this chapter to teach him his word. So why? Why did he want to be taught God's word? And verse 33, Psalm 119, 33 explains. So number two on your outline is scripture teaches us so we can obey. So one, Psalm 119, 33 says this, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes why or how, and I shall observe it to the end. He wanted God to teach him, give him understanding to his words so that he could obey it. That was the whole goal. The psalmist understood that he needed to learn God's word so that he could obey it. Hebrews explains the supernatural ability of scripture. So Hebrews 4.12, I told you this is a lot of scripture tonight. So for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So our hearts are deceitful. And oftentimes we don't recognize the pride that's there because sin is deceitful and pride is sin. And so it takes the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit using the word of God to be able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what we're going for. If we want to have expectations that please and honor God, then we have got to use the word of God because that is the only thing able to decipher whether or not our thoughts and our intentions in our hearts are pleasing to the Lord or not. Only as we peer into the word, consider it, and strive to apply it to our lives will we be able to see the sin that resides undetected in our hearts. Only by understanding scripture will we be able to evaluate our expectations properly. So then number three, meditating on scripture enables us to properly evaluate our hearts. So Psalm 119, 15 says this, 
I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Regard means to consider, to think about. So the psalmist meditated on the scripture and then he thought about it, considering it so that he could have understanding and discernment in order to root out the sin. So sometimes I feel like I say the same things over and over and over and over again, but it really is so important for us to really identify if we want to be godly women. This means not only do we get up and we spend however much time, 15 minutes, a half an hour, whatever it is, reading the word, it means that we have to think about it all day long constantly be bringing it to mind, evaluating what was the thought and intention of my heart just then when I snapped at my child? What was the thought and intention of my heart when I had that critical thought about my coworker? These are really important things that we are constantly needing to think about. And when I say constantly, I mean constantly all day long. We will never truly be godly women until we learn to constantly be thinking through, intentionally evaluating our interactions, our thoughts, our words, all of those things all the time. Is that a lot of work? Yes, it's a ton of work. It requires a lot of effort. It requires intentionality. If we think we can just come to church, we can get up and have our 10-minute reading in Scripture in the morning, it will never cut it. We will never truly be godly women. Yeah, we will grow maybe little bits here and there along the way because we're hearing truth. But if we truly want to be women who reflect the character of Christ, it means that we are going to have to work at it and work really hard at it. But that is the joy and beauty of all of us together because we can encourage one another on the days that are really difficult, when the trials are difficult. We can help each other in this. It's vital. The church is vital to our spiritual growth always. And so that's why we need to be building these relationships. We will never be able to see the subtle areas of pride hidden in our hearts unless we know and understand the scripture, considering the ways our hearts fail to align to it. And then when we notice that our heart fails to align to it, this is really important as well, we have to repent. We have to acknowledge that it's wrong. So sometimes when we have good desires for things, or good desires for good things, but we desire them too much. When we don't get them, we respond in sin, right? We've talked about that before. But we need to consider then why we are, we are wanting these things too much. And we need to recognize what we're doing and then repent when we see that it's sinfulness that's driving those desires because it's sinful. And in order to have a right relationship with God, because sin separates our relationship. It doesn't, if we're truly believers, it doesn't mean that now we're not believers because sin separates us from the Lord. It's not that. But that, that relationship, that intimacy that we have with the Lord, our sin 
drives a wedge in there. And so repentance then is the thing as we confess and repent that brings us back into right relationship with the Lord. And so we need to be considering even when it's things that don't look like they're actually sin, like overtly sin. I got really mad and yelled at my husband. I got really ugly thoughts in my mind to this person over here. Like those we can recognize as sin and be like, oh yeah, I need to repent of that. But sometimes our expectations when they are for good things and we don't get the good thing that we expected, that can be sinful as well when we respond in a manner that's disappointed, that grieves overly much, whatever it is. And we need to identify that that is sin as well and repent of it because ultimately... God is sovereign and he is always doing good in our lives, even when the things we desire, we don't ever get. So we have to be careful that we're evaluating all of those things because I've watched so many times as, as in myself, I wrestle with it, but also watching it in other women as well, that we want something to such a degree, a good thing that we're not getting, that it begins to turn into a sinful desire. But because it's a good thing that we want, we don't recognize it as being sinful. And so then we don't take it to the Lord and repent of it. And so then we continue on this, this separated relationship with the Lord as we continue to move further and further into sinfulness rather than immediately recognizing it and going, okay, I need to trust you that you are good and you always have my best in mind. Anyways, that was kind of a rabbit trail. So as we consider what our expectations are for ourselves, we need to endeavor to root out the pride by looking into Scripture. What drives my expectations for myself? So when they're sinful like that, it's pride that wants to elevate self above others. It's pride that wants to elevate self above God's ordained will. And that's kind of what I was just talking about right just a second ago. Pride wants to deny the truth of Scripture for the sake of getting our own way. Pride loves to adopt worldly advice and ideas that encourage it as right and good. That's a really important statement. Did you catch what I just said? Pride loves to adopt worldly advice and ideas that encourage whatever those things are as right and good. So here's what I mean when I say that. So we can be listening to something on a podcast. We can read an article, something that isn't directly taken from the word. And it may have worldly, worldly ideas, worldly desires underlying it. But because it appeals to our pride, we embrace it and want to believe it because it satisfies the sinfulness that is in our hearts. <coughs> Another reason we become confused regarding our expectations is because of all the wrong messages that are be prom being promoted in the world as though they are truth. False teachers broadcast untrue messages and statements all the time. They are often repackaged 
those things that false teachers are promoting. We know not to listen to the false teacher, but then when some other Christian or some person that maybe we trust a little bit more, they are less discerning and they take that thing that they've heard and now they put it in a pretty little picture and the reference underneath and put it right there on Instagram and we're like, wow, that's fabulous. And we didn't even stop to evaluate, is that a true statement? This is deadly. We have to evaluate these things. So, just to be really obnoxious, I, Kate, I have a list of quotes here from Joel Osteen. And obviously you guys know, oh yeah, these are bad. But be careful, because even thinking through, like, yeah, we're not going to listen to Joel Osteen, and we're not going to, like somebody that quotes that on Instagram, we're going to immediately dismiss it. Yeah, we're not looking at that. But if it comes from the woman on the podcast that you listen to, and you don't realize that she got it from Joel Osteen, oh, well, look, what a great truth. You might be far more inclined to take it because of where it came from, even though it's dead wrong. You have to be able to evaluate it according to Scripture. But if you don't know the Scripture, you're going to be absolutely defenseless to be able to do that. So here's, here's our little quotes. All of us were born to win. Really? Okay, but what are they teaching in the schools? All the children should win. Hmm. You were born to be a champion. God wants you to live in abundance. Okay, we know health and wealth, yeah, we're not going there. But think about it. So, so-and-so has a bigger house than me. So-and-so was able to buy a house in this crazy market. I still don't have one. Well, so-and-so's husband makes so much money. Wish my husband made that much money. Why do you desire that? Really evaluate those desires. Why are you wrestling with contentment? Here's one of the messages that we get from the world that... Uh, what did he say? God wants you to live in abundance. And we, we take that and go, oh, yeah, well, that, you know, abundance, being super wealthy, having a mansion, driving really expensive cars, whatever. But it seeps down. Those messages seep down even to where we live in our little miracle. And we can have, and of course, what does it do? It goes right along with our pride that desires to have all of this comfort and desires to have everything that we want. We have to be careful. He goes on. Before we were born, he prepared us to live abundant lives, to be happy, healthy, and whole. So why is it that we really wrestle when we're not healthy? And of course, we don't have to just be told this from false teachers. Like, it's in our hearts. We, re we recognize we wrestle against our flesh. But when our flesh is wrestling, and these are the messages that we're seeing, it's really easy to want to grab a hold of those things. He says, get your thinking positive, and he will bring your desires to pass, meaning God. He regards you as strong, courageous, a successful person. You are on your way to a new level of glory. So he kind of goes really off the rails there. But you get the point. You understand what I'm saying, why we have to guard our hearts and evaluate the messages that we're taking in. Rather than adopting the arrogant thinking of unbelieving false teachers, we need to seek to align our expectations with the character of Christ who demonstrated humility. In humility, 
I need to recognize myself as a slave of Christ. In humility, elevate others above myself. In humility, see myself as a sinner deserving nothing. So number two, kind of getting to the second half, although this is not really half, Roman numeral two, comparing right and wrong expectations. So we really need to evaluate, are my expectations biblical or are they worldly and fleshly? So A, on your outline, is my expectation of myself a victim or a perpetrator? So which way do I view myself? Do I see myself as being a victim of circumstances, of difficulties, or do I see myself as a perpetrator? Recognizing ourselves as sinners is the first step toward having right expectations. Until we see ourselves as sinners, we will never see ourselves in need of a Savior. That is really, really important. When evangelizing, one of the most common reasons people do not repent and come to Christ, like if you go door to door and they don't come to Christ for salvation, is because they view themselves as a good person. They don't view themselves as a perpetrator, somebody who does wrong, who does wrong things. They see themselves as a good person, and more they would tend to view themselves as a victim. That's taking it to the nth degree there, just so that you know, and we won't go down that path right now. But anyways, obviously, if we are true believers, we have already acknowledged our sin before God and have repented. However, because of the sin that remains in our hearts, we often do not view ourselves and the depth of our sinfulness to the degree that we should. We view ourselves as sinners in need of salvation, but then we fail to live in that place of humility, seeing ourselves as deeply sinful and in desperate need of God's grace for daily obedience. So Paul saw himself as the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, so chief of sinners is actually, I think, the King James way of saying that, which I'm talking from the NASB here, so it doesn't say chief of sinners. So 1 Timothy 1.15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The apostle Paul saw himself as that. And listen to a couple of other places where he mentions this as well. 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then Ephesians 3.8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So he viewed himself as the least of all saints, and he viewed himself as the foremost of all sinners, the Apostle Paul. That should indicate to us that we should also view ourselves in that way. And here's the difficulty, at least for me, as I can read this and believe it and acknowledge it, but what I read and what I believe can be two different things because that pride that's in my heart, it's hard for me truly to view myself as the foremost of all sinners because in my pride, I really do think of myself as better than what I truly am. And so here's the thing those expectations that don't get met reveal to us the pride that's in our hearts to show us we actually are 
like the Apostle Paul admitted, and we don't, the foremost of all sinners. So those things that rub against us, the challenges, the difficulties, that shows us who we really are and helps us to put aside the pride and to grow in humility. And so instead of hating those things, we should actually embrace them because they are the thing that are making us more and more Christ-like. So ways we see ourselves as victims. When negative circumstances occur, we might think of ourselves as a victim because we're the recipient of that negative circumstance. When things we don't like happen to us, we can also view ourselves as a victim. When people don't treat us as we think we deserve, you see like how we can so easily get into this victim mindset and really almost nothing has to happen and we can start having self-pity and feeling sorry for ourselves, which ultimately is, is thinking of ourselves as a victim. And then when other people sin against us as well, when we view ourselves as victims, we fail to take responsibility for our own sin. Thus, we don't repent. This is serious because it stunts our spiritual growth. Sin causes a separation, like I mentioned before, in our relationship with God. If we see ourselves as a victim of someone else, our expectation will be to wait for them to change and for them to ask for forgiveness before we are willing to address our own sin. I've seen this many times in counseling women who are wrestling in their marriages because their husband has sinned and it, it can be very painful sin that he has committed, but they are unwilling to acknowledge their own sin because all they can do is keep pointing to their husband, but look what he's done, but look at his sin, but look how he's hurt me. And so they do not, because they view themselves as the victim, they do not take responsibility for their own sin which may be bitterness, which may be discontentment, which may be unthankfulness, all kinds of things. We cannot view ourselves in that light. We stand before God and we need to view ourselves in light of who God is. And God is holy and we are sinful. And so we need to see ourselves as the perpetrator, not as the victim. Because as long as we see ourselves as a victim, we are going to have sinful expectations that are going to result in more sin. So then, moving to B, do I expect myself to be a slave or a master, serving or being served? It should be our goal to emulate the character of Christ who became, who be, who became a bond servant and went to the cross for us. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wish we had time to dig into the riches of that passage, but we don't. But what I want you to see here is that even Jesus Christ, the, the, the God who created, he humbled himself, 
becoming a man and not just any man. He became the man that was ridiculed, that was scorned, that went to the cross, blamed for something he didn't do and died a death so that we could be redeemed. The, the, the creator God, this is what he did. If he could humble himself to become that bond slave of God the Father, then we too need to have that same attitude. Sometimes we can do the right thing, but with the wrong heart attitude. Jesus set an example of also having the right heart attitude, even as he went to the cross. So 1 Peter 2.23, because sometimes I think we have to be careful. Yeah, well, I'm doing this. But we have like, you know, in our right thing, we're feeling sorry for ourselves and grumbling about it the whole time. Not Jesus. So 1 Peter 2.23 says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus did not fight back. Instead, he willingly obeyed the will of the Father. So it should be our desire to be like Christ, to be the servant. Matthew 23, 11 and 12 says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. John 13, 16 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So some practical ways, and I really feel like I'm doing a really poor job really explaining the depth and importance of this, but at least hopefully in at least drawing it to your attention, it will be helpful because we really need to view ourselves as the slave of Jesus Christ and not the master who should be the one being served. And that we often get that turned upside down because we desire to be served rather than being the one that is serving. So just a couple of verses regarding this. So Titus 3.14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. 2 Corinthians 12.15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 2.17 that he was being poured out as a drink offering for the believers there in Philippi. To truly view ourselves as a slave is to be willing to do the menial tasks, to meet the pressing needs, to pour ourselves out for others, for our husbands, our children, our friends, our co-workers, the church body. If my expectation is to be a slave, I am not going to be offended or respond sinfully when others are elevated above me when they get something better than what I have, when they get a blessing that I had hoped for. Viewing myself as a lowly slave will ensure that my expectations are biblically guided and it will keep me from being proud and sinful. So C, do, not, do, I, ex, sorry, do I expect to receive approval from God or from man? Seeking the approval of man completely distorts our expectations, and it really affects so many ways that we live. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? And this is interesting because remember what we just talked about being a slave. He says, Am I striving to please men? 
If I were still trying, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Jesus Christ. When we are seeking the approval of other people, so we want to be that slave. Remember, we just looked at that in, in the point above. If that's truly what we desire, we have to identify when we are seeking the approval of people rather than the approval of God. Because when we are seeking others' approval, we are not the bond slave of of Christ. Seeking the approval of man may work as seemingly good peer peer pressure sometimes, especially in the church, if it motivates us to read our Bible, to take LBI, to go to Bible study. But if we are only doing it so that others will approve of us, our hearts will not be sanctified. We will not be conformed to the image of Christ. Instead, only our outward behavior will change, and that will profit, excuse me, profit us nothing. So as we consider this idea of getting the approval of man, we really need to think through how that plays out in our lives. Because, so using an example, just I'll pick being a mommy here because most of you are mommies. If you have a small child and you come to church and we're, maybe you're in Sunday school and some of the other moms are around or whatever, you've just picked up your child and all of a sudden they throw a horrific temper tantrum right there in the middle of where everybody can see, like every mom's nightmare, right? (laughs) And here's the wrestle. Do you want the approval of God? Or do you want the approval of man? What is going through your mind as your child is throwing this horrific temper tantrum? If you want the approval of men, then you might want to show that you're a good disciplinary parent and you're going to scold them and spank them and so you get very firm with your discipline. If you want people to think that, oh, you're a kind and gentle mom, you might not discipline them at all and instead, oh, come on, honey, it'll be okay. If you are striving to please God, you are going to be thinking through what it is that God requires of you in that moment. You are not going to be considering everybody else around you who is watching everything that you're doing and who is watching your child through that temper tantrum. And when you are seeking the approval of the other moms and the teachers, keep in mind you are not a bond slave of Jesus Christ you are instead being sinful. And what is the root cause? The pride in your heart. And so you have expectations of how you should respond, of how your child should respond. And when those expectations aren't met, they can easily lead to sinfulness if they are directed by wanting the approval of other people. So D, do I expect myself to be a guest of honor or the guest of the last place. And we are almost out of time, so I'm just going to read this passage, and I think it's going to somewhat speak for itself. So Luke 14, 7 through 11 says this, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you will both come and say to you, Give your place to this man. 
and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sometimes I wonder if this one hits most closely to home, especially in our church body and in our various friend groups, because it can be so easy to desire to be highly thought of and highly sought after. We want to be the one to be invited to the wedding or the birthday party or the shower. When we aren't, we feel sorry for ourselves. We indulge in self-pity, which is really just the victim mentality again. Notice these things that keep resurfacing. Oh, that we would truly view ourselves as the guest of the last place, simply seeking to love God. Oh, sorry. Seeking simply to love as God gives us opportunity and putting the needs of others above ourselves. And then we have to be careful because then we twist it in our hearts. See, you end up knowing way too much about me. So I would sit at the last place. And then my sinful, wicked, proud heart would secretly be thinking, I hope they ask me to move up there. We are just proud through and through. And it is humiliating for me to even admit that. But it's true, and I'm I'm seeing your heads nodding, so obviously I'm not the only one. We have to guard our hearts. We see this pride all over the place. And then what happens when we're left in the, the, the place of the last seat? the last guest. Didn't they notice that I was the important one? (laughs) And then we realize our expectation is rooted in my pride once again. And then we have to take it to the Lord and repent. Oh, I went too long on that one. Okay, last one. Do I expect myself to be sanctified in my flesh or by the grace of God? And I included this one just because I think that so often we can wrestle in this place of really it's it's being legalistic we are trying to clean ourselves up before we go to god rather than living in the grace that god has supplied so do you expect to clean yourself up before you before you go to god in confession repentance and prayer do you have expectations of yourself that you shouldn't be as bad of a sinner as you are so instead of going to god in your big sinful mess You try to get rid of your sin on your own. And here's what I mean. So little things, and I know I've talked about this like in Friday morning and stuff before, but it can be little things where maybe, just to give you an example for me, sometimes like I've caught myself, and I've done this before and caught myself doing it, where it's like I'm feeling a little bit stressed about going and teaching Bible study, and so I'm thinking, I'm evaluating through the week. Did I spend enough time? Did I respond rightly? Did I do this? Like my checklist of approval before God, before asking him, Lord, please give me the grace that I would be able to teach in the best capacity that I'm able to. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm trying to check off my behavior boxes to make sure I am acceptable enough before I come to God and say, okay, now I need help. 
we so easily get caught up in that. What are your expectations for yourself in your sin? Because if we think we have to clean ourselves up before we can go to God and ask for strength and help from his grace, then we are not like the apostle Paul who saw himself as the foremost of all sinners. Because we are trying in our own strength to do this. The apostle Paul was honest with who he was. And so he just went to God as he was, and that needs to be us as well. Galatians 2, or Galatians 3, sorry, 2 and 3 says this. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. So Paul writing to the Galatians, because this is what they were wrestling with. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so full, foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You've been saved according to the spirit. So now you think you're going to be sanctified according to your sinful flesh? No, no. We come to the Lord and we cry out for him to help us because of his lavish grace. Are we trying to clean ourselves up in the flesh without the strength and work of the Holy Spirit? We need to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And that is exactly what God has offered us. God knows who we are. Psalm 103, 14 says, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. We deserve nothing, but we have received grace upon grace, John 1, 16 says. For of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Why is it that we try and clean ourselves up apart from his grace? So, summing this all up, when we grow in our understanding of God's grace, it should draw us to him in humble thankfulness, eliminating the pride that would seek to elevate self. It will change our expectations from seeking to gain what we believe we deserve to giving praise and worship to God in grateful submission to his will. Let's pray.